What are you tempted to do when things take too long? Things take too long. I saw Keith nudge Leah. <laughs> when you're waiting for a baby to come, it seems like it's taking too long. When you pick the wrong line at Costco, it seems like it's taking too long. <laughs> when you're waiting for change in your life, it's taking too long. What are some things that we are tempted to do? I know for myself, uh, I tend to run anxious. <laughs> Maybe some of you can relate. And in times when things are taking too long, my temptation is to try to control. Because if I control things, maybe if I do the most, <laughs> then I can uh, make something happen. I believe I can make something happen. Can anyone relate to this? <laughs> what are we tempted to do when things take too long? I'm sure I am not the only one with some kind of program response uh, in my body <laughs> when things are taking too long. And this morning, as we are continuing our sermon series, looking at the people of God and their journey in the wilderness, we are looking at what happens to Israel, what happens to the people of God when Moses is taking too long to come down from the mountain. What do they do? We're going to be looking at this story trying to humanize these people and their response and trying to find what the invitation of God might be for us. If you've been following along uh, with us in our sermon series, we have been following the journey of Israel in the wilderness. And I have to say, in the few weeks that we've been in the sermon series, we've kind of been jumping all over the place. We haven't gone in chronological order. So I want to just kind of uh, give us a little bit of big picture of what's been happening to these people and where they've been at uh, before we look at this story. And we've heard already in this series that the people of God, they've been delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh. They've been set free from their bondage and enslavement. They've made their way through the Red Sea. They've started to make their way in the wilderness. They've uh, received manna and quail. They've received water from a rock. They've experienced these songs of Moses and Miriam. They're trying to find their way. They're trying to figure out how to live, how to find life in the wilderness, in this new era of life, in this new era of freedom. And the people of God have been invited into a new identity. Pastor Michael kicked off our sermon series by talking about this identity uh, not as slaves of Egypt, but as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation for Yahweh, a people set apart in Exodus 19. They've been invited into this new identity. And for the first time, the people of God got to choose service. They got to choose to serve. In Egypt, they didn't have that choice. They were forced. They were compelled. They were oppressed. They were sort of abused and, and pushed into service. And now for the very first time, they are able to serve in a way that is unlike pharaonic slavery. A service that is sustained by covenant rather than by coercion. And they said yes. They said yes to this uh, way of Yahweh. They said yes to this new identity. And, and Moses began to give them the way to live, 
Um, he went up on this mountain. He's been given the, the t- Decalogue, the 10 best ways to live. He's been getting all these new laws about how they should live as free people. And we come to this point in the story where Moses has been up on the mountain. The people are down below. They can see that there's actually a cloud on the mountain covering the mountain. There's a clear, visible manifestation of the presence of God near them. And they are waiting for Moses to come down. And Moses is taking too long. And they're getting anxious. The text says here that the people saw that Moses was uh, taking a long time, that Moses delayed. And they began to say, um, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. (laughs) We don't know what has happened to him. This guy who uh, was with them through all of the plagues, who was with them through the crossing of the Red Sea, who was with them in the receiving of the covenant, who has been with them through their journey Uh, He's been taking too long. And now they're saying, we don't know what's happened to this guy. And in their waiting, in their not knowing, in their lack of control, they become anxious. Maybe they feel like Yahweh has abandoned them. Maybe they feel like Moses is no longer leading them. And so they come to Aaron and they say, come, make us gods who can lead us. Make us gods who can lead us. And I want to just talk about this passage today, about the gods that the people make. Some things that we learn about the gods that they make and how they make these gods. And I just want to um, back up in a little bit I, and say um, um, we're only looking at the very beginning of this passage because if you know the surrounding, what happens after this, it's a very, very dramatic, complicated, theologically loaded Um, And even maybe triggering a passage where after this incident, there's this whole exchange between Moses and God. And and Moses tries to change God's mind. And God does change God's mind. And then there's this whole sort of scene where um, there's like basically a mass killing in the camp. (laughs) And so there's a lot of stuff here that I'm not going to get to because it's a very long complicated, theologically loaded uh, story, which um, if you're interested in talking more about, you can go to Pastor Michael's Wednesday (laughs) sermon discussion to talk more about that. Um, But for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to just look at these gods that they make and how they make them and why they make them. And there's a couple interesting things that I noted about how they make these gods. One is that they actually make these idols from gold. And this is significant because this gold is actually a God-given gift. If you know the story of Exodus, you know what's happened previously. Uh, There was actually several times that God promised the people that when they would be delivered out of Egypt, they would be given gold. This happens in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 11, it's promised again. And then Exodus chapter 12, this promise is fulfilled. Yahweh has promised that gold would be a key symbol in Israel's liberation journey. That Yahweh promised that um, the people would be freed from Egypt and what they would take away from Egypt would be gold. As a reminder that their freedom is a gift. This gold was a reminder of their freedom that was given as a gift from Yahweh. 
And it is this very same gold that they're wearing around their neck, as they're wearing in their ears, as they've taken this gold from Egypt. This is the very gold, these very tangible signs of God's freedom, God's gift to them. They use that very same gold to make this golden calf, a new God, an idol to worship. This idol is made physically, literally, out of gifts that Yahweh has given them. It distorts the gifts and turns them into other gods. And, and the gods that they make are not just any, right? Um, if we look at the story, what they make is actually a golden calf. A golden calf. And as they say, make us gods who can lead us, they don't just fashion any general god. What they actually fashion is uh, a god of Egypt, Scholars have noted the significance of this golden calf um, because the, the cow or the bull was a very significant uh, animal and god in Egyptian culture. It was the most sacred animal in Egypt. The Egyptian bull god um, Apis, you can see there, uh, was the god of fertility, the god of strength, likely would have been a very familiar image of worship for people who had been in Egypt for generations. They knew the god of Apis. They knew the bull god. They knew this golden, um, this bull calf god, Apis, right? And in this moment when they are uh, feeling anxious, when Moses is taking too long, they're not sure what's happening, when they're in the waiting, they're stuck in this in-between, they turn back to what is familiar. Even if this familiar God is one they were forced to worship, they still turn back to what's familiar. They go back to this image of a bull. And out of Egyptian jewels, they make an Egyptian idol. They go back to their old gods, the gods of the Egyptians. And in their fear, they return to what they know. They return to what's familiar. And they use their newfound freedom, the freedom that is a gift that God has given them. And they go back to the gods of Egypt. And then, <laughs> what do they do? They take this gold that was a gift, they form it into the, the image of a bull, this familiar image to them. And what do they say about this golden calf? They not only imagine it and build it, but then they tell a story about it. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. And this phrase, brought you up out of Egypt, is significant because it's repeated over and over by Yahweh to describe Yahweh's deliverance, to describe Yahweh's liberation. That I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt. God says that over and over. And they use these very words of Yahweh. And they say to this golden calf, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Just months after experiencing miraculous uh, deliverance, in the midst of continued provision, in the midst of even seeing this cloud over a mountain reminding them that Yahweh is there, these people have begun to spin a story that this golden calf is what brought them out. And in their fear, they begin to not only tell, but to also believe 
false narratives, a false history. They begin to distort history to worship these gods. And with the same freedom they use to choose into covenant, they had just said yes to this covenant, remember? They use that freedom now to break the covenant. They worship a God of their making. Friends, I wonder what feelings come up for you as you hear this narrative. Feel free to shout them out. What feelings come up to you, for you when you hear this? Or put it in the chat. I see here someone says, uh, it's almost like they were never liberated. <laughs> what feelings come up for you? Sadness. Familiarity. I see in the chat disappointment. <laughs> Say that. Weariness, yes. Friends, as I think about this story, um, oh, empathy, yes. Barney, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> um, Nancy says it reminds me of how liberation is a process. And friends, if you um, grew up in the church Maybe you've heard this story before. I know I have. And I feel like I, when I heard this story, um, you know, it's really always like this warning tale, this judgment, this sort of like, don't do this terrible thing. This story that reminds us not to worship idols or make other gods. And, and, and you know, to be honest, a lot of times when I heard this, very this individualistic, moralistic idea of idols of like, you know, don't, don't have these idols of like, your money, or don't idolize, like, don't drink, or, you know, don't take drugs. <laughs> like, it's just like very, like, doesn't have anything to do with this story, right? But I don't know if some of you related to that kind of uh, framing of idols or idol worship. Um, <laughs> but if we humanize God's people here for a minute, I, I, which I want to do, when I was, I was studying this text this week, and um, what we see here, I, I guess I just want to say, it's not just this individualistic, moralistic response that we want to condemn and say, don't be like them, don't do this bad thing. Because what I actually see here in this passage, um, kind of like what Barney was saying, is like, I started having empathy for them. Because what I see here is a collective trauma response. A collective trauma response. Imagine these people of Israel who lived for centuries under um, oppression, uh, under enslavement. They have uh, experienced sort of all these different things deep in their bodies, deep in their bones. For generations, they, they are in this moment exhibiting that healing and freedom take time. It takes time to heal. It takes time to change and reverse old patterns that live in our bodies, that reside in our bones. And while their idolatry is sad, it is disappointing. It is something that makes us feel weary. Um, it is not uh, necessarily justified here, but it is understandable, isn't it? Because how many of us know that when things are taking too long, we revert to old patterns, <laughs> right? 
we too can forget the gifts of freedom we've been given and focus on what we're lacking instead of what we have. We too return to what's familiar, even if that familiarity isn't something, um, is something that kept us in bondage in the past. We can go back to these things uh, that, that keep us in bondage just because they're familiar. They feel comforting because they're known. They're familiar. We know what to expect. We too can spin new narratives. We can make distortions of truth. We can believe lies even when deep down we know they're not true. We make these stories to justify, right? And as I looked at this story, as tempting as it was to go off about all the, the gods of the American church, <laughs> um, the things that we have made, because there's some, there's some major golden calves in the American church, right? <laughs> um, that's, another, that's another sermon for another time. Um, I actually felt led by the Holy Spirit to just invite us to gently look inward today. What happens to us when we too feel anxious? What happens when we feel like God has left us? What happens when we feel like God isn't leading us in the ways that we want? Because the truth is, friends, we too are a traumatized people. We too carry pain in our bones. And we too are prone to worshiping gods of our own making. For me, as I was thinking about this story this past week, I, I was led to think about what it's like for me to be a parent. <laughs> Um, friends, parenting is hard. <laughs> and parenting is hard because a lot of times when you're parenting your kids, you're also reparenting yourself. And the truth is for me, as I was reflecting on parenting this last week, I realized that because of generational sort of trauma that I've experienced, patterns that I've inherited in my body, in my bones, in my nervous system, there are many ways that when things are stressful, when I'm not in control, when your kid just isn't doing the thing you want them to do, that you turn to the things that are familiar. For me, those things are, um, there's a couple things. <laughs> One is just to kind of cut myself off from the situation just to avoid it and be like I'm not dealing with that Michael you deal with that <laughs> um, another is to squash or minimize or judge emotions most of the time the emotions of my child but a lot of times it's also my emotions because you know a lot of times I squash my emotions as well <laughs> in those situations and then I pretend that they're not there but then they come back and they you know they they get me later on um, and I also can build false narratives too like being like, well, my child is just like this. That's just who they are. Or I'm just like this. That's just who I am. There's no way out of this, right? And, and these are things, um, these are justifiable, understandable things. These are very human responses. But friends, I look at the story of Israel and I look at us today and in the midst of our trauma, in, our, in the midst of the collective pain we've experienced, I want to offer us this little tidbit of good news is that we can interrupt the cycle. We can always interrupt the cycle. There is always another way. There's always another way. Because even in uh, their unprocessed trauma, even in their waiting, even in their anxiety, even in their feelings of abandonment, God's people were not alone. Amen? Neither are we. And as I look at this story and as I look at these people and what their response was, I, I just wonder what would have happened if they remembered a few things. 
Because just as Yahweh had provided presence in cloud and fire and smoke on a mountaintop, Yahweh is also with us. And just as Yahweh provided sustenance for them day by day in manna and quail and water, Yahweh is also sustaining us. And just as Yahweh had provided gifts for Israel, the gold they were wearing, the markers of their freedom, Yahweh has also given us gifts and been generous to us. And just as Yahweh's spirit was dwelling in among Israel, in their stories, in their bodies, in their lived experiences of liberation, we too have Yahweh dwelling in and among us. Yahweh is giving them songs, rituals, new laws, new ways to live, just as Yahweh is giving those gifts to us now. So what if we used our God-given freedom in times of trouble, in times of anxiety, in times of lack? What if we used our God-given freedom to remember all that we had been given rather than what we lack? What if we chose to remember that we have already th- we already have everything that we need. Friends, in our collective waiting, as we wait for change in ourselves, as we wait for healing in our family and our friends, as we wait for clarity about our future, as we wait for provision for the things that we need, as we wait for justice in our lives and in our world, as we wait for healing for our earth, as we wait for all of these things, in these places where we feel anxious and overwhelmed as we feel uncertainty and maybe even existential dread. May we not forget Yahweh as the one true God who has already saved and liberated us will continue to do so. May we not forget Yahweh as a God not of our own making, but our maker, the uncreated one, the one who was and is and is to come, who doesn't need human gold or human efforts to be propped up. And in our temptation to make our own gods, let us instead choose to remember we have already been given what we need. May we remember all the ways that Yahweh is already leading us, already with us. And may we find the presence and promise of Yahweh to be sufficient for us, to lead us to another way. Amen. Amen.